Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Biden boost to the president provides a timeline for vaccinating the nation. AstraZeneca arguments the row with the EU over vaccine supplies intensifies. No stop for GameStop. The rally continues as investors duel over the retailer's valuation and... Approaching Hyperdrive, Virgin's Hyperloop CEO gives us a glimpse of the future. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We have a jam-packed show for you this Wednesday. Much of it about vaccinomics, that's my word, the Biden administration stepping up vaccine purchases. We've got the EU battling over limited supplies and all this amid growing talk about the potential multi-trillion dollar global economic cost of vaccine nationalism, limiting supplies to developing nations. The whole world needs these supplies. We'll be debating that throughout the show. For now, investors have much to debate too, and futures are under some serious pressure this morning. Investors uneasy. We'll explain why. It's despite a blowout Q4 earnings release from Microsoft as it cashes in on the cloud. That stock rising to new records. We've also got Tesla and Apple results to come after the close today. But all anyone in the market really wants to talk about is what's the end game for video game retailer GameStop as the short squeeze in that stock causes carnage for the hedge funds that had sold it. And meanwhile, smaller investors, it seems, sit on windfall profits, perhaps even on paper, just for now. Three words, froth, not fundamentals. We'll discuss where the major averages end today will also be dictated, I think, by the latest Powell pronouncements, the Fed chair holding a news conference after the Fed's first policy statement of the new year. But for the globe, COVID cases, vaccination speeds and mitigation efforts remains key. And that's where we begin the drivers. Breaking news from the UK this morning announcing passengers arriving from 22 countries considered high risk will have to go into government-provided quarantine accommodation for 10 days. Prime Minister Boris Johnson revealing the details just a few moments ago. Anna Stewart has all the details for us. Anna, what else do we know about these latest mitigation efforts? This is a policy that's being discussed by the government now for days. Finally, we got an announcement by the Prime Minister, but actually not a huge amount of detail. We do expect to get more later in the day from the Home Secretary, but we know that a hotel quarantine will be introduced for those returning from 22 high-risk countries. Those are South America, countries in South America, Portugal, South Africa, countries where actually 
Uh, travel is banned, all non-essential travel. Citizens, of course, though, will have to return. And this is where the quarantine hotel comes in place. It's expected to be 10 days or more. It's expected the passenger will have to foot the bill. It's similar to policies we've seen in New Zealand and Australia, but of course, by no means as comprehensive, given that it only applies currently to 22 countries. And that will be where the critics come in. Is it comprehensive enough? Will it be effective? It's designed to prevent the new variants of coronavirus entering the UK, potentially jeopardizing the vaccine rollout here. But of course, other countries are seeing some of these variants cropping up. Even in Europe, those are unlikely to be included in those 22 countries, although we don't actually have the breakdown at this stage. And of course, new variants could be cropping up all the time. This will be the big risk for the travel industry. It's 22 countries on that list now, but could it be extended? And what will that mean for people's appetites to travel? Julia? Absolutely. And what about UK citizens? If they were perhaps planning to travel somewhere, looking to go on holiday? interesting time to be doing it, quite frankly. Has that now going to become illegal as well? Or will that now become illegal? I think the risk is that these travel restrictions could keep getting tighter. And a lot of it, as we know, is down to customer appetite. Will there be appetite to travel if there is a risk Sunny, your, ho- your holiday could be cancelled, uh, that you could be put into quarantine at your own expense for 10 days or longer. Already you have to have a test, a COVID-19 test before travel to the UK from any country and you have to self-isolate at home. If that wasn't enough, well, an expensive 10-day quarantine in a hotel is likely to put passengers off, uh, travellers off altogether. Julia? Yeah, it's just simply not worth it. Best to stay at home and stay safe. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for covering that for us this morning, too, and the dramatic plane taking off in the background as well. All right, to Washington now. President Biden announcing the U.S. is buying 200 million additional vaccine doses, calling the move a wartime effort. That's 100 million more doses of Pfizer and 100 million more doses of Moderna. 200 million more doses than the federal government had previously secured. Not in hand yet, but ordered. We expect these additional 200 million doses to be delivered this summer. CNN White House correspondent John Harwood joins us now. So stepping up these purchases, which is good news, John, also accelerating the timetable upon which they can get doses out to people in the first 100 days. They were accused of lacking or they were being accused of lacking ambition with those numbers and they've adjusted them. They have. And look, it's difficult to separate what the uh, new levels that the Biden administration is touting uh, from what would have happened anyway. You know, the Trump administration uh, had been uh, uh, overseeing uh, in the last week he was in office a million uh, million vaccinations uh, on a single day. Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, said on CNN last night, well, that was one day. We're saying we can do it for 100 days. Uh, So what we do know for sure is that they're communicating clearly they're elevating science and they're deploying more federal power the results is how they're going to be judged though we're seeing some uh, plateauing and declining in the number of cases as vaccination uh, uh, goes up Uh, so that's good news Uh, but uh, the proof is going to be in the results over the next several weeks and uh, we get the first COVID briefing from the experts in the Biden administration today, that's a shift from what the Trump administration was doing. 
Yeah, greater communication here is key, whether it's good news or bad news, just actually being told information on a timely basis is, is good news. John, let's talk impeachment, too, because a lot of what we're seeing here from the Biden administration, the hopes of trying to provide further stimulus to uh, citizens in need in America depends on the timing of impeachment and how much time that takes up. It looks like it's fizzling before it's even started as far as the Republicans are concerned. Republicans are trying to to sweep this under the rug, forget about it, move on. It is uh, can only be divisive for them to have to confront the uh, criminal behavior that occurred on January 6th and President Trump's uh, role in inciting that. Some Republican members of Congress, House and Senate, their role in fueling the anger that produced that insurrection. Uh, so uh, they simply are not interested in doing that. Uh, the magnitude of the crime against the people of the United States compels the Senate to conduct this trial. That's why the House impeached. They did get 10 Republican votes in the House. Uh, it appears unlikely they'll get 10 Republican uh, votes in the Senate to convict, much less the 17 that they need for an a- absolute conviction. Uh, nevertheless, they're going to have to take a stand on this. Uh, but it does appear that given the speed with which the uh, Congress is moving forward on a fast-track basis to move the COVID relief plan, it's not going to have that dramatic effect either on the nominations to serve in the Biden administration or on the initial legislative program, $1.9 trillion for COVID relief. That's the best part of that. Good news if it doesn't get in the way of um, getting relief to uh, Americans that need it. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. AstraZeneca has rejected criticism from the European Union over vaccine delays. The company says there was no contractual delivery schedule with Europe. It also said that the EU finalised its vaccine orders months later than others, such as the UK. Sarah Vanier joins me now. I was looking at the statement from AstraZeneca. We made no promises. It was best effort. But the EU's not happy. Yeah, no, the EU is furious. That's an understatement, Julia. The EU is furious. They are seething because, well, because they really badly need this. They are looking down the barrel at a third wave of the coronavirus um, that is fueled in no small part by this new variant first identified in the UK. And now it's a race between the virus and the vaccine. And they were hoping that uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is expected to be approved here in Europe, would help European countries if not win the race, at least catch up with the virus. And that is just not going to happen now because, as we know now, AstraZeneca has acknowledged that there are going to be very serious shortfalls in the amount of vaccines that it can deliver to the 27 member states of the European Union. The EU feels that they are being hard done by here, that they are being cheated because they have put millions of uh, euros on the table to help AstraZeneca, not only in the vaccine uh, research process, but also to ramp up that money was supposed to be used for AstraZeneca to ramp up their production facilities. And now AstraZeneca is saying, well, we have a supply chain issue, so we can't provide uh, as many vaccines as we thought we could. And to give you a sense of the numbers, now this is still fairly opaque, but some individual countries have released the numbers. France says that Uh, they think they will only get now one-third of the AstraZeneca vaccines that they were expecting to receive in the first quarter of 2021. That's to say between now and March. And for Belgium, it's a little less than half the vaccines. European member states really, really need this, Julia, and they're not going to get them quickly. 
Yeah, and it's hope for your population as well. You're trying to tell them to restrict their movements and to obey all the rules. The hope here is vaccines. And if they're not coming um, as soon as you'd hoped, then that's a, that's a real blow here. Cyril, is there any rumour or is there any um, truth to the rumour that perhaps the EU is considering some form of export restrictions? It's important for our viewers to understand where each of these vaccines are actually being manufactured and what potential power Brussels or the EU Commission has here to perhaps limit where supplies go and when. I mean, this is excruciating for for the EU Commission, who's out there at the forefront of not wanting to see trade restrictions of any form, quite frankly. What's the story on this? Europe made a big show yesterday of announcing that they would now monitor exports of vaccines that are made on European soils and that actually leave the European Union because they want to avoid Uh, uh, the situation that they find themselves in right now, where there's a shortfall of vaccines. It is unclear, Julia, whether this could actually in any way help uh, this AstraZeneca vaccine shortfall that they have, because as AstraZeneca just explained in their statement released a short while ago, their vaccine production deployed, uh, uh, depends on multiple supply chains across the world, right? So the contract that AstraZeneca has Uh, to supply vaccines to the UK depends on the supply chain in the UK. And that is why the UK are receiving all the doses that they thought they would receive, because everything is going well with production at the UK site. The European site, however, AstraZeneca has explained that, hey, it's a biological process. And a lot of people don't understand this. But when you start the process of making the vaccine, there's actually it's unreliable. You don't know how many doses you're going to get. And it so happens that at the European production site, well, there was a lower yield. And that is why AstraZeneca is not able to provide all the vaccines that it said it could. Yeah. Cerevania, it's complicated getting vaccines to people's supplies at this critical moment, very complicated. Saravania there, thank you for that. Now we have more on vaccine distribution amid a global supply crunch later in the show. UNICEF is the world's single largest vaccine buyer and we're going to speak to their US lead on this story. Shares. In the meantime, a video game retailer GameStop is set to continue their head-spinning ascent today. Shares are now up more than 60% pre-market amid an ongoing battle between bullish day traders and hedge fund short sellers that have bet against the stock. GameStop shares have now risen some 700% year-to-date. Christine Romans is here with us on this story. Christine, I look at this price action and it's absolutely eye-watering. The the market analyst in me is cringing at the frothiness and all the analogies that that we can make here. But there is a story here beneath the surface of hedge fund, the big guys shorting this and smaller players, retail investors buying it and making windfall profits, at least on paper. At the expense of those short sellers. I mean, it's like a David versus Goliath story, or it's a storyline in the TV show Billions, or it's a Michael Lewis story uh, (laughs) novel. You know, it's all All those things wrapped in one. It's so (laughs) interesting. And people keep talking about it and and, and talking about GameStop. Look, the the fundamentals of the company have been rough here. You know, they're not making any money. They've been closing stores. Uh, You see these big short positions in the stock. And then you this Reddit board, this Wall Street Bets Reddit, message board. It's almost like a populist 
trader uprising to support the stock um, with these buying of the out of the money uh, options and really hurting the big guys. So it's just been this interesting revolt that somebody's making a lot of money on, someone is not, and certainly is far out of line with the fundamentals uh, of this company. You know, it's funny. In some cases, people think it's, it's sort of funny how regular day traders could distort a stock price uh, so much. But you, one wonders what they think about this at the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, is it manipulation oh. or is it just fair and square talking up a, talking up a stock? It's fascinating. I know. There's a lot of mom and pop investors here that could be cheering at this moment and could end up in tears. And your point yes. about the regulators here is is absolutely pivotal for me. I mean, step forward, Gary Gensler, the former Wall Street guy that's now going to head up the SEC. This is fresh meat, I think, for the regulators of those voices, particularly in the Democratic Party that will be like, we need to regulate hedge funds. Enough of what we've seen. Go on, go for it. <laughs> no, I, it's just it's it's so interesting because some of the some of the chatter on these message boards is about how this is just desserts for the you know the the bloodthirsty short sellers you know who are who are constantly out there making money on on, on weakness in stock in companies or sometimes not even weakness in companies. So there's a sort of a feeling of of righteousness among some of the uh, some of the people who are who are playing this game. But I mean, it's they're they're going after other names this morning too. So I think this is also kind of a story of the frothiness of the market overall, where you've got story stocks that are getting so much attention and, and, and so much hype here. There's just a lot of money at work in the market. There's a lot of interest from retail investors in the market. And now these story stocks, I think, um, have really gained a lot of attention here. Maybe uh, not warranted, but gained a lot of attention. Someone's going to be hurting when this thing uh, yeah. turns. But for now, it's not turning. Yeah. Froth, not fundamentals. We are two people and one mind. I flatter myself. <laughs> Christine Romans. Thank you, as always. Bye. All right, still to come on First Move. Introducing Virgin's high-speed hypertech loop. I speak to the CEO about the future of transportation. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move with COVID-19 vaccines in short supply worldwide. UNICEF, US and entertainment brand Discovery are partnering to deliver 2 billion vaccines to frontline workers in poor and middle-income countries. One dollar from every new Discovery Plus streaming subscription will go towards UNICEF's vaccination drive. And I'm pleased to say uh, joining us now is Michael J. Neinheis. He's president and CEO of UNICEF USA. And Jean-Briac Perret, he's the president and chief executive officer of Discovery International. Gentlemen, fantastic to have you on the show. JB, I want to begin with you. What drove this decision? You know, Discovery uh, has been a company that for since its inception has been one uh, that's been uh, with the aim of doing good while also entertaining. Um, And uh, we've been on this mission for 35 years. And as we launched this uh, unique new product earlier in January, uh, that is Discovery Plus, which aggregates all of the 55,000 hours of content plus exclusive originals all around the one streaming service uh, that is about real life entertainment. We also were looking for ways to continue to do good, particularly in this moment where we're all dealing with such challenges uh, economically around the world. And so teaming up with UNICEF to uh, uh, not only provide great entertainment, but also to provide great needs 
to people who want to have need to have access to the vaccine and to the efforts of UNICEF who are trying to drive the two billion vaccinations for people in need around the world seem like a logical combination of two great brands trying to do good while also doing well. And so for every uh, new Discovery Plus uh, subscriber, uh, we're going to offer uh, one dollar uh, to uh, to UNICEF to help in their great cause of helping get vaccinations to the most needy around the world. I mean, the monthly subscription very quickly, five, five to seven dollars, depending on whether you've got ads or or not. And obviously, how much money you raise is going to depend on subscriptions. Do you have any kind of forecast for how many subscriptions you think you can add in the next year? You know, we, we hope certainly uh, that it'll be in the millions and if not tens of millions uh, of dollars. Obviously, uh, we'd love to see this to be uh, as big as possible because uh, uh, obviously there's a lot of need and UNICEF is doing great work. Uh, and as part of our uh, corporate initiative that we call RISE, which is reducing inequality and supporting empowerment, which is really something that we've uh, embraced uh, in the 220 markets and territories we operate in around the world. Um, this is uh, right in the sweet spot of that. And so the more we can help uh, while also entertaining people, uh, the better. So we'd love it to be uh, a lot. <laughs> so would we. And, and Michael, I'm sure, uh, agrees with you too. Michael, come in here. I mean, you have unparalleled, I think, experience in terms of both procurement, what's required to get these vaccines to poorer nations, harder to reach nations, but also the logistics involved. And we've already seen the logistics here are incredibly tough, no matter whether it's a Pfizer or a, a, a Moderna vaccine or even AstraZeneca. Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges UNICEF will ever take on uh, to deliver, uh, we hope, two billion doses of vaccine uh, just this year uh, to some of the um, poorest and middle income countries, uh, the remotest places, the most difficult to reach places. Uh, but UNICEF was made for this. We do this on a regular basis. We're, we vaccinate half the world's children under five every year with the basic vaccinations that they need. So we can use that same expertise, the same lessons we've learned in supply chain to get down to the last mile and turn that toward the COVID crisis to make sure there is equitable access to the COVID vaccine all around the world. I mean, two billion doses is phenomenal in the space of a year, but you know, the, the planet's obviously far bigger than that. We spoke to the Serum Institute of India's massive vaccine producer recently, and he said it's going to take to 2024 to get vaccines for the entire globe. Michael, what's your sense of that? Do you think we can do it quicker than that? Well, we certainly hope to do it quicker than that, but it is a Herculean task. I mean, this has never been done before. This is the, the, the biggest um, historic effort uh, to do a global vaccine uh, campaign. So, you know, we know the challenges of uh, delivering vaccines every day uh, to do something at this scale and as quickly as we need to do it, as we want to do it. Uh, there's no, no doubt we're going to hit challenges along the way. Uh, but again, you know, there's nobody better equipped to do it than UNICEF because it's core capability for us to be able to deliver vaccines around the world. JB, clearly the business communities can do more to help. And you're obviously stepping up here and saying, look, we can we can provide support here and um, and a chunk of money. The International uh, Chamber of Commerce put a report out yesterday and said it's going to cost potentially the global economy over nine trillion dollars if we see vaccine nationalism and, and we don't get these vaccines out to, to poorer nations, to emerging market nations. What more, JB, can the business community do here in terms of leadership? 
Well, I think it's, Julia, it's, it's a really important moment um, uh, when uh, certainly all of us are trying to do everything we can to, uh, to, to help us all pull through this. And so I think um, we're, we're, look, we're one company, but we're certainly trying to lead by example. Uh, we have obviously this incredibly important UNICEF partnership around Discovery Plus, but the reality is through this RISE initiative that we kicked off last year, mm. we have a number of different uh, programs that we work with uh, uh, internationally. So Save the Children is a big partner of ours also outside of uh, the United States uh, where we work with them uh, in terms of trying to improve uh, and increase the uh, the access to basic human needs. Um, and I think uh, we do stuff around uh, food and hunger programs in the United States. And so I think for, for us, it's about uh, every company stepping up and finding ways that are uh, organic and true to them to really help uh, lead our communities forward because it's going to take all of us uh, rowing in the right direction to get through this. Uh, and ideally, to your point of 2024, feels like a long time away from now. And so the more we can all do individually and as companies, I think we uh, we certainly feel we can accelerate the progress uh, with the help of partners such as UNICEF and ourselves to get there sooner than that. If I, if I look at... Um... Some of your competitors, Netflix, HBO Max, of course, not too far away from uh, from home, given that this is uh, this is CNN. And I look at the share prices and the swathe of greater subscriptions that they've had of people being at home trying to entertain themselves in in different ways. Are you sort of throwing the gauntlet down perhaps to your competitors as well and saying, hey, we're willing to give up a dollar of, you know, our subscriptions, our new subscriptions. Perhaps you guys could do the same. It's a direct way to help and provide support to Abs to someone like UNICEF. Yeah, look, I think uh, this is what makes competition a great thing, is ultimately this, if this truly is a call to action to others to do something similar, we would love nothing more than that. Um, and so uh, <laughs> we would invite that, uh, we'd love that. Um, but as I say, I think for us, the ability for Discovery Plus, uh, at a time when you say absolutely rightly that people are stuck at home, stuck, more limited, can't do the socializing that we're all used to, uh, have an opportunity to engage in incredibly compelling, unique content, uh, and a service that really is uh, unique compared to others in the market who are doing a lot of scripted series and scripted entertainment. Our content is all about real life entertainment and real life. Uh, and so uh, the the opportunity to do, as I say, to do uh, great work uh, for our humanity and our communities through the UNICEF program, but also to do great entertainment while doing it and have people find something unique on Discovery Plus that they can be passionate about and love, whether it be that food, true crime, uh, natural history, adventure. Um, for us, it's a very logical and uh, and uh, exciting uh, linkage yeah. of those two causes. It's a good business decision. Michael, it is a call to action. I think this is the key here. And I know it's not just about the business sector. You're working with the IATA to work on the flight logistics and how you how you get these vaccines out to people. What more can people do if this is your platform now, message to businesses and those that you, know, you could get greater help from? Yeah, well, we'd love the kind of competition um, uh, that we were just talking about uh, to, to get everybody involved. This is an all hands on deck effort. We need everybody. We need the business sector. We need private philanthropists. We need the foundation community. Uh, we need the governments. We need everybody to do this. This is something that has to be done. We have to beat this pandemic. And this is the way to do it. You know, this is not just um, it, we have a moral imperative to do this, I think. Right. People around the world, uh, even in the poorest communities and the poorest countries, they need this vaccine just as much as we do. The health worker in Malawi needs this just as much as the health worker in New York. So we need to make that happen. But there is self-interest here, too. Right. We need to protect the whole world. None of us are safe until yes. all of us are safe around the globe from this pandemic. 
So we really need everybody coming to the table. And, um, you know, we'd love for you know people to, to go to our website, unicefusa.org, to find out what we're doing. Again, we need private donors. We need corporations, foundations, governments, everybody to pitch in. Yes, help each other and help yourselves at the same time. And um, yes, Disney, Netflix, Warner Media, call is out there. We hope you're listening. <laughs> Guys, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing, Michael and JB. We've got the CEO of UNICEF there and the CEO of Discovery International. Guys, thank you so much. All right, counting down to the market open and that's next. Welcome back to the show. I just want to take you to Washington, where new U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has delivered remarks to State Department employees just a few moments ago. Trust. This is a priority for me because we need a strong department for the United States to be strong in the world. To that end, we have to invest significantly in building a diverse and inclusive State Department. We need the most talented people. We need the most creative workforce. We cannot do our job of advancing America's interests, values, and commitment to democracy without a State Department that is truly representative of the American people. Now, I can't promise that you will support every choice I make as your secretary, but I can promise an open door and an open mind. I'll be forthright with you because transparency makes us stronger. I'll seek out dissenting views and listen to the experts because that's how the best decisions are made. And I will insist that you speak and speak up without fear or favor. And I will have your back. One of the great attributes of our foreign and civil services throughout history has been your nonpartisanship. You serve Democratic and Republican presidents alike because you put country over party. All we ask is that you serve the United States, the Constitution, and the President to the best of your ability. I know you'll do that. The world is watching us intently right now. They want to know if we can heal our nation. They want to see whether we will lead with the power of our example, if we'll put a premium on diplomacy with our allies and partners to meet the great challenges of our time, like the pandemic, climate change, the economic crisis, threats to democracies, fights for racial justice, and the danger to our security and global stability posed by our rivals and adversaries. The American people are watching us, too. They want to see that we're safeguarding their well-being, that we care about their interests, that our foreign policy is about them and their lives. We will do right by them by pursuing a foreign policy that delivers real benefits to American families, protects their safety, advances their opportunities, honors their values, and leaves their children and grandchildren a healthier and more peaceful world. So we've got our work cut out for us, but I am confident we will succeed. The United States has enormous sources of strength. We're going to build upon them. America's values are noble and powerful, and we will recommit to them. And America's leadership is needed around the world, and we'll provide it. 
because the world is far China more likely to solve China just one of the items, of course, on his foreign States. policy list. And they've already American called on the Biden administration to learn lessons and correct its mistakes. I quote, Kevin Rudd is the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. He's also former prime minister of Australia. Kevin, fantastic to have you on the show fascinating events over the last couple of weeks. We've had the Chinese further cracking down in Hong Kong on those that they believe have flouted the new national security law. We've had the former or the outgoing administration relaxing rules on Taiwan. As a chess game goes here between the United States and China, we're at a tense moment. What do you make of it? Well, I think we now have uh, formidable opponents, both in uh, Beijing and in Washington. The Trump administration its China strategy was a bit like uh, a roller coaster ride out on Coney Island. It was always lurching this way and lurching that way. Um, it's not to say that their overall redirection of strategy in the direction of so-called strategic competition was wrong, but the execution was sorely lacking. I think when you start listening to Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken and others joining the administration, what you do see is the emergence of a consistent line across the administration. Secretary of State on the same page as the Secretary of Defence, um, Mr. Austin. Uh, you see it also with the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, Commerce, uh, as well as um, the others in the National Security Council led by Jake Sullivan. And it is a hardline approach to Beijing, but one which I believe will seek to restabilize the overall relationship, but that does not mean a return to the status quo as it existed before 2016. Yeah, I was going to say the difference between that Coley Island roller coaster and what we're seeing today is you hope you get off that roller coaster at the end. To your point, does the getting off that roller coaster at this moment mean a reduction in the tariffs? Does it mean that we see greater protections for things like intellectual property theft? Because that at least it seemed was what the Trump administration were targeting. And China, quite frankly, didn't back down. Well, I think the incoming administration of President Biden has been singing from one uh, hymn sheet during the first week, which is uh, it intends to adopt a tough hardline strategy towards Beijing. Um, as I said, there have been a synchronized set of statements right across the administration. If you're looking for where um, breaks could occur, however, mm. in what I describe as a restabilization of the relationship, we should look at possible reciprocal small measures. For example, the decision to close consulates in each other in each other's countries, which uh, made more difficult the normal lines of consular and diplomatic communication, the bans on each other's journalists, um, visa restrictions in terms of a travel by officials or even students. These would be small steps which each side could consider. Now, look carefully, for example, at what uh, one of the administration's leader, leading Asia experts, Kurt Campbell, has said most recently uh, here at the Asia Society in the United States as well, pointing to possible moves in that direction, but they would need to be reciprocal. You know, it's not the only nation that we have to worry about the United States and China, as important as that relationship is. I mean, your own home nation, Australia, has had its own challenges and battles ongoing with China, too. I mean, you're a Mandarin speaker. You're intimately known to, to the government in China. How do you see that relationship evolving, too? And is there a sort of way to de-escalate the recent tensions between Australia and, and China, too? Because clearly critical for your nation as well. 
I think in terms of the Australia-China relationship, there have been actions taken by both governments which have been not helpful. Uh, but given the election of the Biden administration, uh, I think there is an opportunity to again restabilize uh, the relationship between Beijing and a number of leading American allies, not just Australia, but look at the last 12 to 18 months to two years in terms of China's relationship with, for example, Canada and earlier yeah. with South Korea and earlier with Japan and other European allies as well. But the principle is this. What the Chinese will be looking for very early is a signal as to whether the United States intends to make a condition for any restabilization of the overall relationship with Beijing, Beijing also restabilizing with leading American allies, including Australia. And that, I think, is where much of the early dynamic will lie uh, in uh, the unfolding bilateral relationship. China's leading foreign affairs advisor to President Xi Jinping, Yang Jiechi, is due to speak um, uh, in an address uh, in the United States for the U.S. National Committee on U.S.-China Relations in a few days' time. It'll be important to see whether there are changes in language there. Militarily, however, China is, is sending signals it intends to be, it intends to be hardline as well. Uh, it's uh, air deployments recently against Taiwan, the indication of new military exercises in the South China Sea, means that there'll be this two levels of, um, of mm. um, shall we say, diplomatic and military game, one hardline, at the same time looking for ways through as well. Yeah, many difficult dance steps to execute here, Kevin. It's going to be fascinating if the uh, stabilisation to some degree occurs Great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Kevin Rudd there, President of the Asia Society Policy Institute. We appreciate your wisdom. All right, after the break, airline speeds in airless tubes. More exclusive peeks into the future from Virgin Hyperloop. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. One day it could be the fastest way to travel on the planet, zipping from city to city at airline speeds inside a pod, pod inside a pressurized tube. Last year's Virgin Hyperloop test showed us how it could feel. And now we know what the pods might look like. The space age concepts came from the Hyperloop team today. Each pod carries 28 passengers, some very cool looking interiors and note no windows, but vast open plan passenger terminals. And if you're wondering, there are several routes in planning stages. Jay Walder is the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop and he joins us now. Jay, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Just talk us through these videos because you've really given us a sense from start to finish what this experience could look like. Sure, Julia. It's great to be here again. You know, look, this is coming now on the heels of putting the first passengers in a Hyperloop, which we did at the end of last year. And, and our company is not just about the, the technology. We really wanted to rethink the passenger experience. We had the opportunity to think about this really with a clean sheet of paper um, from the ground up. So what we're really looking at here, I, I think is really the first new form of sustainable mass transportation, mass transportation that people will actually prefer to use. We're, we're combining uh, several things. We're combining the, the speed of air travel uh, up to a thousand kilometers an hour we're combining the personalization of the automobile and the flexibility that that has, and we're combining the, the capacity uh, that we have on, on mass transit. 
And when we put all of that together, that becomes a package that is uh, truly inviting, one that says, don't use mass transit because you should or you have to, use sustainable mass transit because you want to, because you prefer to, because it, it's easy, flexible, convenient, and super fast. I mean, there was so much in this video and I have so many questions. Um, the first thing that struck me, and I know it's very important to you, is the feel of this, the noise, what you hear. The, at one point in the video, there's a coffee that's barely moving and the, the speed above it was above 500 miles per hour. Talk to us about just the experience of being in there and what it will feel like, because this is critical. It's as critical as cost and accessibility, I think, for, for those who might use this. A- a- absolutely. And I love to say that you'll be able to to travel at 500 miles an hour without spilling a drop. Look, <laughs> we are using a, a proprietary magnetic levitation system. You're literally floating on a bed of air and it will be super smooth. We are able to achieve these speeds uh, in a way that we've never seen before. One of the advantages of what we're doing is that we control the environment. The tube is 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 completely uh, serene in the way that it is. So if we think about air travel and turbulence, we don't have any of that that is taking place here uh, right now. So it is intended to, to allow you to be able to, to get on a Hyperloop, to, to sit down, to be peaceful, to be calm, to be serene, to be using the time the way you want to use the time, um, and to know that, that when you get to your destination, that you are in the, in the city, that you are part of the community right there. Uh, one of the favorite things that, that I love to think about about this is somebody getting off a Hyperloop and taking a bike share to get to the, the place that they want to be. How amazing would that be? And, different and, and centuries, that, different centuries of modes of transport. <laughs> I love that concept. Yeah, well, no, I, I like I, it. I think it, I, you know, you know and, and, you know, even take it a step further. What this is really saying to us is that that we can actually get up in our community get to Hyperloop, get on Hyperloop, and be in another city that is 100, 200 miles away from where we live in perhaps less time than it takes us to drive cross town. That's the vision. I mean, we were comparing it to air travel there. I mean, if you go door to door quicker than perhaps you could travel, if you factor in the queuing time, the waiting time, getting to the airport two hours early, whatever it is, then that would be something really key. What about accessibility in terms of cost, though, Jay? Will it compare favorably with air travel, for example? Oh, I, I think it'll be much, much better than that. Look, what we're really looking at here is that this is transportation for everyone. It really is mass transportation. Uh, we can carry uh, very large numbers of people. And the way that we think about it is that it's much more comparable to the cost of a car trip or a train ticket uh, than it is to, to uh, air travel. What we're keeping are the air speeds. We're going to keep the price and the cost of, of cars and trains. Okay, so Jay, how long before the concept that you've provided us here, and it's a wonderful concept, is actually um, able to come to fruition? And tied to that, I think we're expected to see Pete Buttigieg confirmed as the transport secretary here in the United States. And the message I always hear is, look, it's okay. It's actually relatively easy to upgrade infrastructure in this country. Trying to build new infrastructure is a 
pain in the behind. And it does come down to environmental concerns, among many other things. And I saw you cutting swathes through beautiful countryside there. And I wonder whether the practicalities here are going to be a huge challenge. Well, I have to say that I, I love uh, where the, the new president, President Biden and Pete Buttigieg are coming from right now. Um, they're starting from a place that says we really do believe that mobility is important and that shared mobility, mass transportation is an important way to be able to do this. They have a vision in terms of the environment and a recognition that we need to focus on that now and that doing something about it requires more than just making incremental change to what we've done uh, before. Uh, one of the things that the, the new secretary has uh, said in his confirmation hearings is that he's excited about new technology, that he'd like to see it come in and be part of what we are, what we are doing. Um, and then there's one more part of this that I think is, is really, really big, which is this is driving with bipartisan support right now. Uh, it really is picking up that strand. It hits so many things that people care about. It hits what we want uh, for our cities. It hits what we want for the heartland of the country. It's able to create new jobs and new industry that's associated with it as well. And so um, I, I really love the direction that's there. I think this fits with it uh, in being able to do it. And it's very, very exciting. Yeah, now we need the execution. Hallelujah, though, to being excited about technology. Yippee. Jay Walder, thank you for sharing this with us. It is very exciting. I'm trying to moderate, my, moderate my enthusiasm, failing miserably. The CEO of Virgin Hyperloop there. Thank you. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move with a look at the price action so far on Wall Street. U.S. stocks are lower with the biggest losses coming from the tech sector. A bit of consolidation, let's call it that. Ahead of today's Fed policy statement and key earnings from Apple, Tesla, Facebook, after the closing bell, Dow component Walgreens, one of the companies bucking the trend, it's rallying on word that Starbucks executive Ros Brewer is going on board as its new CEO. She'll become the, the only, in fact, African-American woman to head up a Fortune 500 company. In the meantime, all eyes on the shares of GameStop, the video game retailer, rallying once again as the massive short squeeze in its stock continues. That's what's causing the disquiet, I think, in the markets and uh, taking a bit of steam out of the broader market rally. GameStop, though, not the only massive gainer. Shares of movie theatre firm AMC up around 200%, another company where traders are targeting short sellers. Wowzers. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 